we get to today's podcast, I want to talk to you about the new and improved VelaNews.com. As you may have seen, we launched a new website. If you go to VelaNews.com right now in the upper right-hand corner of the screen, you're going to see a box that says join. I want you to click on that. It's going to take you through a couple easy and free steps. It's going to allow you to personalize your own homepage. As you may know, VelaNews.com is part of the Pocket Outdoor Media Group. That includes Triathlete Magazine, Podium Runner, Women's Running. And across all these titles, there's a bunch of really compelling content about there that's appropriate to endurance athletes of all kinds, no matter if you're a cyclist, runner, triathlete, whatever. If you're interested in things like proper recovery, great sports nutrition, if you're looking for recipes for meals that are going to help fuel you on your own long rides, you can now access that it, uh, you can now access that content with an easy click of the button. So let's say I'm interested in the Tour de France, gravel racing, as well as yoga, stretching, and recovery. I click through some of these boxes, and voila. All of a sudden, I now have access to this really cool piece on Traffic Magazine. What foods will help you sleep? Here's another one on Podium Runner about ways that you can recover at home and use, like, door frame to help indoor mobility. I, this is really cool stuff that a lot of us never get to see on villainews.com. Anyway, that option is out there for you. It is free. It's really easy to set up. I suggest you all take a peek. Go to villainews.com right now. Personalize your website. And uh, if you have any thoughts on this, hey, webletters at villainews.com. Feel free to reach out. Okay, let's get on with the podcast. Uh, welcome back. Welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you from a sunny Tuesday in Boulder, Colorado. I'm in Boulder today at the Velo News home offices. We were doing a little uh, gravel bicycle roundup photo shoot earlier today. Check out VeloNews.com a little later in the week for all of that. Uh, we got a great show coming up this week. Andrew Hood and James Start are on the line, and we are going to talk all about the recent news involving Chris Froome, that he may be seeking a departure from Team Ineos, or at the very least, sort of testing the waters out there in the market to see if anyone wants to bring him on. Uh, then we're going to talk a bit about um, some of the reporting that we've done around Marco Pantani staying in the theme of the Giro d'Italia, which would have been going on. It's not going on. I've been watching reruns of the Giro. Some of those really great Giros, like 2005, when everyone just rode up the hills so fast. Never really got tired. That was a great era. Um, second part of the show, I am linking up with Keegan Swenson, U.S. mountain bike champion, who recently uh, broke the world record for Everesting. I, as, as, as quickly as these Everesting records are getting broken, by the time you listen to this, Keegan's record may have been broken. Uh, he broke Phil Guyman's record, who had broken the previous record. I, it feels like every few days or so, someone is going and riding their bike 29,028 vertical feet in the name of charity and doing it a little bit faster than the person before him. So we're going to link it with Keegan to hear all about the challenge, why people are doing these crazy things, um, and just like what it was like to do the same thousand foot climb 29 times in a row. Oh God, that sounds awful. Um, kudos to all the cyclists out there in the community who are taking on these charity challenges. We've gotten word of lots of you out there who are like, Everesting or riding 24 hours on Swift or I don't know, the weirdo who rode the you know, 33,000 kilometers in his apartment in London. Um, a lot of people out there taking on these big challenges to raise money for charity. Um, I'd love to write about you all. I cannot, unfortunately. Thank you for messaging me about your various challenges. Um, if you're interested in pursuing one, check out VelNews.com. I had a piece this past week that sort of gives helpful hints for if you want to raise money for charity by riding your bike a great distance. Um, and we're going to talk again to Keegan about that. Okay, let's get to it. On the line right now, I have James Stark calling in from France and Andrew Hood. And guys, I got to say, one of the joys of our weekly editorial meetings in this era of social distancing and working from home has, being, has, has been seeing sort of like the personal upkeep of the three of us. Because... James, I'm going to start with you. James is a um, handsome guy, and I feel like he has been adhering to a very regimented personal upkeep regimen throughout uh, throughout coronavirus shutdown. He's shaven, he's clean shaven, his hair is short, he's natally attired. Um, then we're going to switch to me, 
And my hair is like now down around my eyes. It's not yet like ponytail length, but I, I kind of look like, you know, when you're like a freshman or a sophomore in high school and you're like toyed with the idea of growing long hair. Um, and then there's Andrew Hood. And Andrew Hood looks like he has a Brillo pad on his face <laughs> with that beard. Hoodie, how's that beard feeling? It's coming along. I'm not getting, I'm not shaving until there's a uh, vaccine. So it could be, it could be ZZ Top Country here pretty, pretty quick. <laughs> Yeah, man. I, it's like I could, you know, if I'm uh, cleaning like uh, some pan that I cooked something in and there's stuff stuck to the bottom of it, I could use your face to just just scrub it off of there. I, Andy, I don't know if the Twitter friends will give accreditation to your beard. <laughs> yeah, when, when, I, when I see friends, they don't recognize who I am. They think I'm so humble. <laughs> you know, I always wanted to be Jerry Garcia. So yeah. it's my, it's my, it's the older, the older Jerry. And James, I mean, are you doing this yourself? Do you have a background as a manscaper or a stylist? Like, how are you keeping so just, how are you keeping it so high and tight during uh, lockdown? Well, I take a shower every day. Wow. Yeah, I shave. And now what I have to say I was, uh, I came out on top was I found this little space for where for the last two months I was able to ride my bike on my rooftop with my rollers. And so I was outside getting an hour of sun every day and staying in pretty decent shape and working my tan lines. Uh, so that helped immensely. I thought I was going to be flying when I went on my first bike ride. And what did I do? I face planted. Oops. Sorry about that. Word. So I'm now recovering. I think I'll just spend the rest of the summer on the rooftop. It's much safer. <laughs> Guys, let's get into it. The big news that broke last week, um, cyclingnews.com had a story that sourced nobody, sources that sourced mysterious sources. Cycling News understands that um, Chris Froome, four-time Tour de France champion, most successful Grand Tour rider of this generation, is potentially seeking a departure from Team Ineos. In fact, according to this Cycling News story, Chris Froome, at the time, was even thinking about leaving Ineos midway through the season. A mid-season transfer, the story said. Um, look, we all know the reporters at CyclingNews.com. I respect their work. I have faith that they got this from a legitimate source who is close to Chris Froome or Timonios or someone in the know. Um, but that has kicked off a week of um, stories on websites and reporting about what this means. Is this true? What's going on here? And that is going to be the subject of the first part of this podcast. So, Andy, look, you've been in the cycling media space a long time. When you see a story like this, and, and first of all, before we get into it, we're going to have some speculation. We're going to have some educated opinion on this matter in the uh, podcast. This is a podcast. We're not like, um, we're not, we're going to loosen up some of the rules on like uh, hardcore reporting. So for all you capital J journalists out there, um, you know, have a, have a beer and, and indulge us with some of our uh, banter on this topic. So Andy, how does a piece of news like this get into the cycling media scape and make its way around uh, the cycling world like this? Is this something to be trusted? Yeah, a story like this can come from whole different kinds of uh, different sources. It could come from, uh, you know, you hear gossip from a mechanic or a swanee overhearing a conversation. They might tip a reporter off. You could hear it from a rider agent. That's where you get a lot of these kind of semi-scoops because a rider might be trying to trot out a, a rider to find a contract and they might uh, have a little bird uh, tweeting in an ear of a journalist that uh, so-and-so is looking for a contract and this team might be interested. Or you hear it from uh, one of the riders on a team uh, saying, hey, I heard that uh, my boss is talking to Froome. Or, you know, you can often hear it from the person themselves or their agent. You know, it's like they want to get the story out. And that's how a lot of times these things can be uh, almost planted. Um you know, reading between the lines here, I mean, it's no secret that Chris Froome was off contract this year. Uh, that's already been well known. I mean, his contract's up. Uh, Garrett Thomas has one more year through 2021. And then uh, uh, Egon Bernal is on the docket through the end of 2023, I think is the correct year. Uh, he had a five-year contract he signed. So uh, obviously it's getting crowded at the top of uh, Ineos. So the fact that uh, Chris Froome might be going somewhere else is not really that surprising. Um, I think it's in the context of COVID is what makes this put a little more wrinkles on this story, just in terms of, you know, are there some troubles at Enios? Perhaps they don't have enough money. We just saw a story last week 
in the British media that Enios, the uh, one of the oil subsidiaries by the uh, team owner Jim Ratcliffe, is uh, seeking a uh, half billion dollars in aid from the British government. Um, so maybe there are some problems there at Enios. Sources have told me that the team has not cut or reduced wages at Enios so far. Of course, they have the highest budget, forty-five million, compared to the rest of the world tour. So you know, and also there could be some friction there between uh, Brailsford, between you know, Brailsford obviously is putting a lot of his uh, eggs in the Bernal basket. So Froome probably, and there were some comments last week from Froome, from uh, Bernal a week or so ago, how saying he was not going to lie down this summer if they're all racing the tour and let just uh, Froome win that fifth tour. So some pent up tension. I, I think it's a legitimate story. I mean, there's no doubt that uh, a rider like Froome is going to be shopping around. If there's a better deal, he might take it. Um, but, you know, obviously, he he has been the man at that franchise since 2012, uh, 2013. And, uh, you know, do they acrimoniously want to end that relationship between Brailsford and Froome? I mean, a big thing for me is the unexpected recent tragic death of Nico Portal. He was a real confidant of Froomey. They were kind of hand in hand through all of Froome's victories. Portal was the guy in the car for Froome. So perhaps there's something there where Froome just maybe doesn't feel at home. You know, he's coming back from that injury. Maybe he felt like he hasn't gotten the support. You know, it's it's uh, very possible that he does leave, but at the same time, you know, he might just they might uh, you know smooth these feathers over, and then uh, he'll stay there for the rest of his career. James, you yeah, seen I anything think, like this before? Oh, well, I think uh, we've seen uh, things like this before on, on different levels. Um, I, I would think, firstly. Um, you know, obviously we're all speculating. And the main reason why is because I wouldn't say English has done a bad job of clarifying the situation, but they haven't tried real hard to come out with a firm statement to the contrary. And neither has firm for that matter. Um, and they've, you know, every time they are asked about it, they, you know, it, it's, it's just not real. It's, there's no adamant uh, statement on either part that, no, we, we've, been, we've had too much uh, success in the past, too many great memories to ever leave. And, you know, there's no strong statement to the contrary, which just adds, you know, adds to the, uh, adds to the fire. Um, and, and obviously, you know, there, there's so many reasons and there's so many different parts of this story, but I don't think anybody would be surprised to, to see that, Ineos, with three Tour de France winners on the team, could have a little bit of tension within the team. And I talked to Bjorn Rees last year, or last uh, yesterday, actually, um, you know, legendary sports director, the Tour de France winner himself, and um, and also somebody who, you know, had a young up-and-coming rider in the name of Jan Ulrich that kind of pushed him aside. And he was just, you know, he said, it's just a no-brainer. I mean, all of a sudden you got Bernal, who came up very quickly, probably faster than anybody expected. Um, Thomas, who, if anything, got confidence by finishing second last year because he showed himself winning it the year before was no fluke um, and thinks he can do it again given the situation. And then Froome was lying in bed last year during the tour going, well, if only I should have, would have, could have, and I still can if given the right opportunity, but looking and going, well, there might not be that opportunity. And then, as Andy said, you know, there, you know, this whole COVID thing has thrown everything up in the air, and some of some of the uh, associate companies of, of Ineos, uh, they're in, their, in the petrol industry, are are struggling, and you know, they might not have as deep a wallets as they had before. So, you know, I think um, there's a whole lot of reasons why they could be looking around. I certainly have seen, you know, we've seen this on every. How many super teams have we seen that have just you know too many chiefs and no Indians? You know, I mean. La Vie Claire, Bernard Hino, Jean-François Bernard, and a certain Greg LeMond, all fit, you know, fighting for it, not, not to mention Andy Hampson, you know, or, or recent and, and Ulrich or, you know, the list goes on. You know, look at Sky in 2012, and all of a sudden the whole plot was for Bradley Wiggins, and then all of a sudden one day in the Pyrenees, Froome looked stronger, and he, they had a hard time holding him back, and he was not happy about that. And, you know, that, that put in great, Great, uh, that, that had a lot of tension in 2012 to the team, and it played out in 2013. Don't forget, you know, Wiggins would dearly have loved to have been able to return to the Tour de France in 2013 or 14, race it once again. He wasn't given that opportunity, so you know, these sort of things 
happen on, on all levels within big teams, and we've seen it before. Yeah, I I get get back to the also you know just look at what's going on in the cycling space right now with COVID, with teams shutting down, and with teams potentially shutting down and budgets getting cut and um, you know, what a tough time to be, to potentially be on the labor market. I mean, we've seen it with, I'm sure listeners have seen it with friends of theirs who have either been laid off or who are trying to find new jobs. It's like, this is a really strange time to try and make um, a career change, let alone a company change. And so I, I wonder if that news was made public as part of sort of a trying to feel out the market for where, you know, what, what teams might have the resources to bring Froome on? All right, you know, Froome is coming up to the end of his um, contract, and maybe there were some preliminary discussions about what the, you know, the next number, the next size of his contract could be. Maybe he didn't like some of the numbers thrown out there. Um, and yeah, I mean, why not test the market to see who else is out there? I, I think it was interesting that a lot of... Uh, in the follow-up stories, a lot of the same teams were named as potential suitors for Froome. Basically, the teams that have money, Bahrain, uh, McLaren, Israel Startup Nation, NTT Pro Cycling, you know, basically the teams that have not had rumors or outright information about them, you know, having to cut salaries or potentially scale back amid COVID. But, you know, I mean, something I come back to is what does this mean for the if like if Froome were to leave, what does this mean for the the changing balance of power in the world tour in terms of Grand Tour teams? Um, well, obviously great, you know, I mean, because you, you divide up one of the monopolies, although, you know, the biggest monopoly and they've, you know, I, I always like the tours where there is not a dominant team or rider uh, where there's a lot of suspense. And, um, you know, although in the historical level, you know, the, the great teams write the history as did, you know, and the great champions as did Eddie Merrick and Bernard, you know, and as has Indios and Sky, but or as did Miguel Enderin, but they often can, you know, they can make for some pretty boring racing actually, because they just, they so overwhelm the racing. So having the, the more that the big name riders are spread around on different teams, the better it is for racing in my books. Yeah. I mean, it was Andy who wrote the column, uh, Froome versus Ineos, bring it on. Yeah. Yeah. It would, it would be a great dynamic to see that whole challenge of, you know, Froome trying to beat the team that carried him to success. I mean, one thing to say about Sky is that in Ineos, they were very successful kind of creating that fortress Froome around Chris Froome in those many years where he would just, uh, you know, really use uh, the time trial and use his climbing abilities. But no one could even really get close to Froome. They just kind of protected him in that shell. And uh, and then he would just finish it off at the end there. And it would be an exciting race to see, you know, perhaps Froome racing against Bernal uh, on a different team and see those guys really clash because, you know, Froome would have the advantage, you know, assuming he's back to full strength, he would have the advantage, of course, in a time trial, which would, you know, set up uh, Bernal to really have to attack in the mountains. And, you know, it'd be pretty exciting to see kind of a mano-mano duel there between uh, Bernal and uh, Froome and Sky versus Froome. And, uh, you know, I think going back to that conversation about a, a deal and what kind of teams could afford him, you know, remind me of, of some of these deals we've seen in the past too, where it's not necessarily a team sponsor that, that signs a rider of, of the stature of Chris Froome, but a guy like Chris Froome can bring his own infrastructure with him. He could actually go to a team and bring in a sponsor. You know, a lot of times we've seen that with guys like Peter Sagan, who was backed by Specialized. Mark Cavendish did it a few years ago with it bringing in his own personal sponsor into a team. And that's kind of one thing I would imagine almost where Froome might, you know, perhaps kind of transitioning in the last part of his career, maybe even going forward, you know, you see these writers have long-term relationships with, with bike brands, with different sponsors, you know, Cadell Levin still is a BMC ambassador. Uh, you could imagine the scenario where Froome, you know, brings in a sponsor of his own, uh, goes to a team, any team, really, you could go to an NTT or an Israel and say, Hey, I've got a sponsor going to pay my salary. I'm going to bring these three guys. You have to pay them. I'm going to bring my sport director, my trainer, my Swanee, my mechanic. That's how Contador did it. It's a it's a package deal. So Froome would have to have his own sponsor to do something that big in this environment, or someone would have to be willing to open the paycheck, open the open up and sign a blank check. And the guy that comes to mind there is uh, Israel Cycling Academy, Sylvan Adams, who probably is the behind Radcliffe, 
probably the wealthiest and most, most ambitious team owner right now on the world tour. I think that um, it, it, there's a couple, a whole lot of things. I mean, what's interesting about Ineos is they've almost evolved into the quick step of the grand tours. Whereas, and, and what, because they obviously they built a lot of their stock around Froome, but they've shown that they can win the tour with now they've won the tour with four different riders. And that's very much like, you know, quick step that can do in the, in the Paris-Roubaix or Flanders, you know, well, ah, Boonen's not the tops today. We'll send trips up the road. And um, so I think that, you know, that what does that mean? I think that means that uh, Froome's role in the team is less central than it was, obviously. And plus, he's coming back from two years of not racing the tour and a lot of unknowns. And then there's just so many other, other unknowns in the sport because of COVID, because of team budgets, uh, which, you know, were maybe, you know, certain teams might appear soluble a couple weeks ago, much less so now. Or teams that may appear as soluble right now won't when they actually have to open their books. But from if 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 indeed from moves on, he's you know he, he may very well have to make choices between a team that has the budget and a team that can actually help him win a fifth Tour de France. Yeah, you bring and up on. a good point there, which is is legacy. Which is look, Chris Froome is thirty five now. I mean, he is one hundred percent. He has to be thinking about his legacy and his history and the sport. And, you know, maybe he's not the type of person who looks back in history. I tend to be. I tend to be the person who looks at, you know, the last era of dominance and saying, like, wow, Chris Froome has four Tour de France wins. He might, he could have six, you know. 2012 with Wiggins, you know, he was a stronger rider, but Wiggins won. 2014, he crashed out. Who knows, you know, what happens that year. Um, 2018, he chooses to do the Giro. He's too tired to win the tour, but you got to figure that if he is going full gas for that tour to France, he's probably beating Thomas. Um, and then he crashes out last year. So there's a handful of opportunities where he wasn't able to win. Um, and when it comes to legacy and history and spot in the sport, I mean, I look at the way that storylines like this play have played out in other sports. I mean, right now in the NFL, this exact storyline has just played out with the new England Patriots where, you know, the Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, um, era that, you know, won six Super Bowls and dominated this 20 year history of the NFL literally just broke up because, you know, some of the reporting and the inside scoops around there is basically Belichick, the coach, the mastermind kind of felt like Brady wasn't up to it anymore. It's not good enough anymore. And Brady, who's 42 or 43, still feels like there's gas left in the tank and wants to keep going. And so what does he do? He changes teams and, you know, gets a bigger paycheck and wants to still go at it someplace else. Um, and it's just so, so interesting to see potentially a similar storyline playing out here where, you know, the, the dynamic duo of mastermind and star athlete at some point in competitive sport where the whole idea is to win, like that, that stuff just doesn't last forever. Well, we saw it with uh, Cyril Guimar and Bernard, you know. You know, I mean, uh, Cyril uh, hired, you know, and, 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 and took him to, what, three, four Tour, uh, four tour of France victories. And then they had a real falling out. And I, I think there's even still a little tension today regarding that. Uh, and yet, you know, his so many of his great victories, greatest victories were done under the, the Jetan Renault uh, teammate or team colors, you know. Uh, so, yeah, these things uh, happen. All the time, I think, you know, anytime you get that much money and so much power is involved that uh, friendships have a whole different kind of way of existing. Yeah, you wonder You wonder also looking at how Brailsford operates inside Enios. You know, he, he's purely a numbers guy when it comes down to making those decisions. You know, they did that with, uh, as, as uh, James said, between Wiggins and Froome, you know, 2012. You know, they packed off uh, Wiggins to the Giro and backed Froome simply because his numbers were better. So you got to wonder if there's something similar going on inside of uh, Enios right now. They're looking at the numbers and, and saying, you know, Bernal, he's 23. He can just produce the power and he has the ability probably to still improve, whereas Froome's coming back from injury. I mean, it's a fairy tale ending either way for, for Brailsford. You know, if he, you know, he backs Bernal and he wins again, he wins five more tours. Or if they bring Froomey back and he gets the comeback and wins the fifth, I personally think that Froome will stay at Ineos because I think the best place for him to win a tour again is at Ineos. Uh, what I think would play out would be a really interesting, 
you know, a really big, interesting fight between those guys inside that bus because yeah. uh, in the past there's always been kind of this, oh, yeah, you know, we just back, back the strongest rider. You know, Chris Froome always made a point of that was he was the strongest rider in this scenario. But we could see all three of those guys fighting each other inside the bus to try to get that leadership mantle uh, in the tour this summer. What looks yeah. better for uh, Brailsford's historical legacy? The man who led Chris Froome to five Tour de France victories and placed him alongside Eddie Merckx and Bernard Hino and Jacques Anquetil, the all-time greats? Or the guy who helped lead four different riders to an era of dominance at the Tour de France where maybe none of them got to the same, you know, magical five number, but, you know, the team itself won a bunch of tours. Which one looks better? Well, I think, I think when you talk about legacy, you can talk about Froome's legacy, but obviously I think Brailsford is very legacy oriented. And um, he made, you know, he's made it very clear that Bernal is, is the future of, of the team and he sees the leg, his legacy uh, on Bernal, I don't think he's. I don't think anybody saw Bernal coming up this quick, this fast. But you know, he, now he's there, and he's probably a bit cheaper than Chris. And you know, and Chris hasn't been to the uh, won the tour for two years, this be three years. So who knows? But you know, uh, why not both? I mean, maybe uh, who knows what's going to be in store? We still may not have a Tour de France this year. Maybe the Tour de France next year will have more time trialing. That has not been the tendency of the tour organizers and in, in the last couple of years they really reduced time trial and that's one reason why guys like Dumoulin have been putting as many eggs in the Giro basket um but if they decide to give the time trialers a chance again more of a chance well that would tip the weight maybe for Froome or, or obviously Thomas Thomas um so you know if he stayed there was an there's a, there's a chance for Brailsford to have a five-time tour winner legacy and you know how many, you know, maybe 10 tours to France with all his different riders? Who knows? Well, guys, changing gears here, you know, we talk about history. We talk about legacy with these riders, with these amazing legacies and places in cycling history. And, um, you know, this month would have been the Giro d'Italia. We've been doing some content on the site around Italian cycling and uh, the Giro. And um, in the last 10 days, James, you've been doing some interviews around a rider with a very interesting legacy, that's Marco Pantani. Uh, Marco Pantani, uh, Giro winner, Tour winner, died before his time, 2004? 2000? Um, and both of you guys have done a fair amount of reporting around Pantani and his legacy. And I've just have been really interested in some of the perspectives that people are sharing on Pantani, you know, 16 years after his death, 20 years after his uh, peak in the Grand Tours. And James, I'll start with you. I mean, you have interviewed um, Philippe Brunel, former teammates of Pantani. You know, here we are 20 years after, you know, he was really at his peak. What tends to be perspective on him? What, how, how are people sort of rethinking his place in cycling history and Italian cycling history? <clears throat> it's, it's been interesting for me, actually, going back over it with... Uh with uh, journalist friends like Brunel, who, you know, loved Pantani, or his old teammate, Mario Chiesa, who talked to us about the first formative years of, of Pantani. And I remember Marco when he came on the scene. Uh, I was just starting out myself. And, um, yeah, I mean, I was kind of going back through the memories. Andy, you you threw out one of your, your memories of him. I remember, like, going to his hotel room door in the, like, the 90. Three Tour de France and knocking on it after dinner, trying to see if I could line up some interview. And and he, he said, "Well, not right now because I'm getting ready to go to bed." <laughs> but you know, he let me. He gave me some time at the hotel uh, after the race was over the Monday morning after they were leaving to go back home. And that was the first time I had uh, any chance to to talk with him. And my Italian was very tentative, and he was uh, you know very respectful. And Andy, I know you've had some similar things. Uh, it's just, but there were so you know so many big names. There was Armstrong in the '90s. There was you know all the the other tour winners, and I don't think I think I was a little bit late to the myth of Marco. And it's been talking with friends and other colleagues where I see that really in the '90s, maybe the rider who resonated the most, who left the biggest impression, may well have been Pontani. He was just he didn't win that much, but when he won, he won in such a big way. And and then he was a sort of melancholic, poetic figure, you know. And um, 
trouble, obviously troubled, and and there's a, a certain uh, I don't want to say sensitivity, but you know, there's there's just something profoundly human in Marco Pantani that really resonated. I know kids, I've people come up and said, "Oh, when I was a kid, I would I would go there and wait at his bus and wait for a you know a water bottle, and he would and he actually like let me into the team bus one day." You know, this is just a kid, right? Um, so he had that. He had a very strong rapport with the fans that, that, that has remained. And then the way he climbed was so memorable. And you had a couple of great memories, too, I, I remember. I think we all do. Yeah, this was back in the day. Uh, I was just kind of starting out as well. And it was back in the day. This is well before Twitter. Uh, you know, the Internet hadn't even really existed. Didn't exist, really. It was just starting. And so back in those days, you know, getting an interview, getting those quotes, it had such more importance than it does now. Now a quote comes out, some guy can put a little note on an Instagram and then everybody in the world has it instantaneously. Back back in those days, if you got some words out of Marco Pantani, it had some value just because he didn't really say that much, at least especially to the non-Italian speaking uh, media. And I remember the only time I did interview Pantani one-on-one was, I think it was like the Welta Murcia back, way back in the day. This is like back in the 90s. And um, it was that Mercatone bus, a little camper van they used to have. It wasn't even like a big full-on bus. It was like a little kind of one of these pickup truck camper vans. And Pantani was in there. And I remember that he agreed to talk to me through this, the, uh, through the, through the window that had the uh, kind of the shade was there. And Pantani was preparing for the start of the race. And I got a chance to ask him a few questions. And all I could see was Pantani's silhouette with his ears sticking out. And that's the only reason I knew it was Pantani. And he spoke about himself in third person. So I'd be like, you know, what, you know, Mr. Pantani, you know, what are your big goals for the season? And he'd be like, ah, Marco Pantani wants to beat that asshole Lance Armstrong. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you know, Armstrong and Pantani had that in pretty tremendous rivalry, you know, not every year during Lance's little tainted run, but there's a couple of, a couple of years there, especially it was Pantani it was, was one of the guys saying that because uh, he missed the 99 tour and he was one of those guys that was saying, you know, mouthing off in the media saying that, oh, Lance's 99 tour win was kind of a one off because Pontani wasn't there and a few other guys weren't there that year. I don't think Ogre was even there, perhaps. And uh, so I remember there was always a lot of tension and some choice words between Pontani and Armstrong back in that uh, era that no one likes to talk about anymore. So that's a, a segue into the question that I want to pose to both of you, both from your own perspective, but also in your discussions with these people about him, which is that, you know, so many of the big stars from that era are now persona non grata in the sport because of their own doping admissions or doping busts or, you know, bad activity and bad behavior. Yet Marco Pantani is still held on this pedestal. And I mean, look, he tested positive for drugs. He was busted for doping. He had his own problems. He's been, you know, rumored connections to the mafia like he was a complicated dude he had his his problems uh, why do we think that marco pantani's reputation and myth seem to soar above um you know so much of the baggage that's attached to the doping era and so much of the baggage that keeps other top riders from that era from you know being still vaulted um up there you know that's that's a million dollar question, really, and I don't know if any of us understand that. There's there's so many dynamics that come into play. I mean, why does the Tour de France strips one person of uh, uh, of uh, of a title and not another? I mean, I remember when they stripped Bjorn Reese of his title, and I was like, well, uh, Eric Zabel's teammate uh, who won seven uh, green jerseys. Uh, also admitted to doping, you're going to take his green jersey. Oh well, no, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to go that far. Well, why not? You know, I mean, you never where the lines are drawn is 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 very hard. And then where fans will forgive riders is is also a sort of great unknown. Some of it is the way that just the way that they way, the impact they have on riders or on fans, I think. And then you know, Pantani. Well, Pantani's dead. You know, he had a trap life at the end and um so i think they're you know, uh, you know i don't want to give it the 27 club rockstar sort of mentality to it but i think there's a fair amount of sympathy uh for him because they realize he really was a very troubled person on many levels yeah i would agree with that james that uh the fact that uh his passing 
I think has helped shape his legacy going forward. I mean, a big part of it too is just the Italian media in general just paints this picture of Marco the Saint, and it's almost a drumbeat every year. The Giro, these big pieces come out on all the media, on the television, on the all the newspapers. They do special sections. They do CD-ROMs. They do these books, just painting this kind of storyline that Marco was, you know, the greatest cyclist in Italian history since, you know, uh, Kobe and Bartoli. So as part of that, you know, he has the media telling that story. And I've also, I think Fred and I have had this conversation too about how, um, you know, how arbitrary it is in terms of how people remember former cheaters. And I think a lot of it is how people deal with it. Um, you know, how they come about to, you know, like Bjarne Reis, here's a guy who's back in the Peloton after his problems he's had in the past. But Bjarne, for, for, you know, it took him a while to get around to it, but he did eventually just fall on the sword and has admitted it, and he talks about it, and he vows never to do it again. And people kind of give him a pass, whereas other people have kind of done the same thing, but they don't get that same pass. And I've often, I've often thought also it's it's a little bit of between the Catholic and the Protestant mindset. Like, uh, like in the Italians and the Spanish and, and the French as well, people kind of this Catholicism is, you know, it's forgiveness. It's like we're all sinners. We're, no one's perfect. So if you if you kind of forgive and admit your sins, you kind of get a clean slate going forward until like the next weekend's mass. <laughs> whereas I'm just joking, by the way. And whereas the Protestants are much more, you know, it's that black and white. It's like you're an evildoer or you're yeah. uh, you're a you're a saint, you're a cowboy, or, you know, you're the bad guy. And yeah. it seems like in the kind of the Anglo cultures, that is a much bigger divide. And I think we're seeing that play out a lot of times, perhaps with. There's no, there's never any nuance. You can't see the human. You can only see the person as all good or all bad. That's a tremendous uh, point, Andy. And, and uh, I hadn't thought about it like that, but it's, it's a really tremendous point. And especially, uh, you know, in, you look at it, it, the, the disconnect is how those same Protestant cultures can, you know, so easily overlook flagrant doping in other sports, but I'm, I'm not going to go there because I only care about my sport, which is cycling. Um, but yeah, I think that's a really tremendous point. And also, I think probably, I guess the way you know the way that they were with the fans, these riders, the way that they worked within the teams. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, Lance is you, you can't really not talk about Lance here. Um, it wasn't just that he doped; it was the way that he did it, um, and the way that he treated uh, people around him at times, certain people around him at times. Um, whereas somebody like Bjorn Reese, I mean, he's got you know, he's a very controversial person in the press room but boy oh boy have i i could i could i could there's a line line that could be on my door of people willing to give me testimony about what an amazing team director he was what an amazing team manager he was at all levels be it a swan year be it a manager be it a mechanic everybody who worked with bjorn reese within their teams loved working with bjorn reese and feels like it was some of the best years of their careers yeah, and you see a, a similar perspective play out in some of these other sports that have checkered histories. I mean, you know, Major League Baseball had this whole 20-year run where the top riders, the top players were using uh, steroids. And, you know, some of those players have been given something of a pass by the media because they were gracious and good guys and hard workers and sort of embodied the spirit of the game that you always wanted. And then there's someone like Barry Bonds who, you know, he was just a, just a, by all means a, a real jerk to interview and was not particularly nice to people and demanded a lot of attention and was sort of a prima donna and like, you know, people, nobody, there's, there's not too many baseball writers who are bending over backwards to try and welcome him back into the sport. So it's almost like, you know, how you compose yourself as a person um, lives on. That is part of your legacy, not just whether you uh, won all those tours de France, but also if you were, you know, you were a decent, good person. Good point. <laughs> I think that should be um, applied to journalists too. I think that uh, the Andrew Hood legacy will have to deal with like how good a dude you were in the press room. And yeah, okay, he grew a beard that one time and it was, you know, real scratchy and kind of uh, strange to look at. But man, just still, just a great guy to go have beers with. <laughs> well, you know, that, that, that very much, that sort of dynamics very much does exist in the press room. It's just that we're not uh, in the spotlight. I mean, there are good journalists and bad journalists. There are journalists that we all respect, Andy being one of them, um, for being you know very generous and and, and helpful and, and and trying to help out others with information, uh, facts, uh, getting the story right. And then there's others who won't give you anything and won't help you at all. And and they're like you know 
they're very, well, they're jerks. But, um, but you know, we're in the press room and we're not on the stage that is the Tour de France. So the, you know, the spotlight's just not on us in the same, same level. And, and cyclists are human beings. I mean, uh, there's great cyclists and there's not so great cyclists. We're all, you know, we're all in this thing, but there's, you know, while there are cyclists at the Tour de France, there's stars in their sport and, and they're on center stage. And so everything that they do is, is analyzed at just a much higher level. Well, guys, coming up, I have an interview with one of those good cyclists. Keegan Swenson, he is the reigning U.S. mountain bike champion. He's an all-around good guy. I've interviewed him a number of times. And he just rode his bike for eight hours, seven hours and 40 minutes, eight hours straight to uh, cover the distance, the height of Mount Everest to raise money for charity. Um, so we're going to hear from him next. But thank you so much to James Start and Andy Hood for coming in on the podcast this week. We will catch up with you guys next week. Always great, Fred. Thanks, uh, thanks for reaching out, Andy. Always fun seeing your hairy little face there. Hey, before we get to Keegan Swenson, I want to talk to you about Roll Massif, organizers of eight of Colorado's most iconic road, gravel, and mountain bike events. You may have heard me talking about Roll Massif before here on the Vel News Podcast. Uh, they have the events to take riders through the alpine terrain around Copper Mountain, one that takes riders through the desert landscape of the Colorado National Monument. Regardless of the event, you're always guaranteed to have fun at the post-ride festival and party. Here's what I really like about Roll Massif. The events are free to anyone under the age of 18. They are a great opportunity to help get your child, your niece, your nephew, that young person in your life. It's a great opportunity to get them involved in cycling. Uh, right now, we have a great deal going on. If you go to rollmassif.com, that's R-O-L-L-M-A-S-S-I-F.com, uh, listeners of the podcast get 15% off registration to any event. Use the code VELONEWS15 at checkout. Uh, this goes through June 1st. Again, rollmassif.com, VELONEWS15 at checkout. You get 15% off. Thanks again to Rollmassif for sponsoring this week's episode. Okay, let's get on to Keegan Swenson. All right, my guest now is Keegan Swenson. Keegan, as you heard my intro, just Everested, set the new record. He is driving somewhere in Utah to go ride his bike. I don't know why. I feel like riding your bike for seven hours and 50 minutes, eight hours in a row is more than enough to get you through the entire week. Um, Keegan, how are your, how's your body feeling today? You're a few days removed from the Everesting Challenge. How are you physically feeling right now? Actually, a lot better today. Um, a few good nights of sleep. Uh, last few days, I just had like just did like little easy hour long spins. Rode my e bike one day, um, so it's been pretty chill. But I'm actually feeling like almost back to normal now. <laughs> we'll what, see how I feel today, though. Like, what was the most tired? Was it just like in you know physical exhaustion, or were there pain points? Like no pain specifically, just like generally fatigue. You know, like physically and mentally. That was a big effort. Everything was just kind of wrecked. Just needed a few days to kind of recollect and recover. Uh, so, Keegan, we've read on the site uh, over the last two weeks um, other stories about riders taking on the Everesting Challenge, using it as a way to raise money. I mean, give us your own backstory with it. Why did you want to do it? How did you come up with the idea as well as the charity? Yeah, I mean, it's just something I, uh, I without racing this spring, I've kind of craving, like, just some big challenge, you know, and I kind of thought about this Everesting thing a bit. And I was like, oh, that sounds like kind of fun. I mean, type two fun, you know, but just to test myself and see if I could actually do it and see how fast I could do it. Um, I just kind of love like digging deep like that and kind of finding, like pushing myself to like new levels of whatever you want to call it. Um, but uh, yeah, so I kind of thought about that. And then my buddy Ryan is raising money for bike MS and figured we could kind of combine the two and, do something big and cool. Um, so that's, that's kind of it. One of the elements of Everesting that has been interesting to me is, uh, well, first of all, how, yeah, under the COVID shutdown, I mean, people are really starting to follow it. I mean, it's, it's a challenge. It seems like it's doable by, you know, fit cyclists, but in order to have a good, you know, a good time at it and not just die, I mean, you have to be really in shape, but one of the compelling, yeah. um, one of the compelling aspects of it when going for time is sort of 
the limiting factors. So choosing the right climb, choosing the right gear, choosing the right effort mm-hmm. to like put into it. I mean, how did you go about making those decisions for your attempt? Yeah, I mean, originally I was going to do a longer segment, like most of the way up Pine Canyon um, with a target time of like eight and a half hours or so. Like I wanted to like break the record, but um, I was just going to do a longer climb. And then Phil and kind of blew the record out of the water. So I had to like kind of fully reassess my plan. Um, so I talked to my buddy Jonathan at Trainer Road and we ran some numbers and kind of figured out that that shorter, um, like 1.8 mile segment just in the gate at the bottom of the road to the first switchback was going to be the quickest option. And then I'd just do that 29 times. Um, and that was, that was it. So it was the most, most efficient, you know, like an average grade of 11%, um, no tight turns, no really big flat spots. Uh, so it was kind of like the most bang for your buck every time you went up and then you're able to quickly turn around and get back down. So, and now is that like a gradient then that suits you the best? I mean, when I think about, you know, what, maybe you're a rider who like climbs better at a slower gradient. I mean, it it was this like Mm -hmm. this steepness, then did you feel like it suit your strengths as a climber? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I kind of like steady climbs. Um, there was one pitch that was like 23% at the very top. Um, but it was only for like maybe a couple hundred feet. So I figured that I was, that was like, you know, I was going to make a lot of elevation real quick. I should just stand up and kind of bust that out quick. But I do think like you're an Everest, you want to pick a climb that, that suits kind of your abilities and your riding style. Um, and for this climb, like I was able to maintain like 80, 90 RPM all the way up aside from that one pitch, uh, so for me, that was kind of the plan of the guy. This is like perfect. I can maintain the cadence I want, the power I want, and then just stand up and grind out the last couple hundred feet every time. So, How would you describe the effort level then you were putting in on those climbs? I mean, if there's world, you know, start of a World Cup mountain bike race effort, and then there's also recovery ride effort, like where were you on that scale? Uh, what were you trying to hold? Um, so it was somewhere, definitely somewhere in the middle, uh, higher end middle, I guess. It was definitely like a tempo sweet spot effort. So um, something you can do for a long time, but it slowly gets harder and harder, like RPE-wise as you go. Like it starts off relatively easy for the first hour, but then by hour six, you're like, oh, wow, this is really hard. My heart rate is through the roof, and um, you can still just keep doing it. What was uh, what are the memories then that are still pretty vivid about like the the tough moments? What was the toughest moment? And yeah, take us through how you got through it. Uh, well, the hardest bit was probably when I hit hour six, um, and I can't remember exactly how many laps I had left. Uh, maybe like six or so. But uh, I was like, wow, I'm like pretty shelled right now, and I still have literally an XEO race of time left. <laughs> uh, so that was kind of mental hurry look it over like all right we'll just keep taking off the laps and we'll get through this and how cognizant were you of phil guyman's uh record setting time especially in those last few hours uh i mean i knew like at that time like i knew i was on pace to be in if i just kept doing what i had to do so i guess it wasn't that wasn't so much in my mind it was more i just keep here's a pace that i have to ride in order to beat it this is what i'm going to keep doing i try not to worry about like worry about all that other stuff so it wasn't like you were... Because an effort like that, you have to focus on your own. Like, it's so long that, like, you can't really make it a race. You just have to make it more of, like, a race against yourself to maintain that power, the effort that you're trying to do. Yeah, and that, to me, is what makes the Everesting Challenge a really compelling one. And, you know, the fact that there have been all these record attempts and, you know, Phil said it and you broke it a couple days later. And I'm sure that someone else is going to try and break it. Someone maybe will by the time that listeners are listening to this podcast. But it's like such a long challenge and such an effort-based challenge and you don't really know where you are and then it's coming down to the wire. I mean, it's almost like trying to, you know, break a two-hour marathon or something like that. I see it on that pace where it's like you really are racing against yourself even though there's this arbitrary time that's kind of out there. Yeah, exactly. Just a race against, kind of racing against your own mind and um, and obviously in hindsight, like there's definitely a lot of things I could do to squeeze out a few seconds every lap and that would add up to like a few minutes over the course of the whole thing, right? That's such a big effort that like, I don't know if I really want to do that again. Um, and there's a lot that goes into it. But uh, yeah, it is, that's why I think it's so cool. Is, I mean, anyone can do it on any climb. I'm sure those climbs are going to suit it more than others, but you can really go out on any of your favorite hometown climb and 
knock it out if you so choose. What do you think then will be like the proverbial two-hour marathon mark? What will be the what will be the approximate time that you think could be the barrier that'll take you know just a lot of engineering and science and re- a lot of attempts to try and beat? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's really hard to say. Like, I think the climb that I did it on for me was pretty ideal, but at the same time, it's also the altitude. So if I were to put that same climb at sea level, I could maybe ride an extra 20, 30 watts. So like there's maybe, that's maybe 10 minutes over the course of the whole thing, right? So then we're down to like seven and a half hours. And if you found a climb that was perfectly straight at 10% without any big pitches and without any turns, then you're able to go 55 miles an hour down to 50. And then that's maybe a few minutes. So then you're under seven and a half hours. So I don't, I mean, honestly, it's hard to say. Like we're going to need, some more pros to go give it a whack and see kind of what they could do. And, um, yeah, but then again, it all comes down to the climb they chose to do it on. So kind of a lot of, a lot of stuff that goes into Were it. Were you off the bicycle at all during those seven hours and 40 minutes? No, I didn't stop once. That was part of my game plan was to not stop. Cause that's free time. I know Phil didn't stop either. And I was like, well, he, he didn't stop and I don't have to stop. So <laughs> that was kind of the plan. No bathroom breaks. That's a, <laughs> that would be a, yeah, no, that's, that's a limiting factor. Right like, there. I thought about it once. Yeah. Like I thought, I was like, ah, I think I might have to pee, but then it went away and I was like, all right, well, now we're not stopping. So I'm going to keep going. Well, it was a heck of a ride, Keegan. I mean, when you compare the pain that you felt at the end of it, is it anything comparable to what you've had in a World Cup mountain bike race or a marathon mountain bike race? Was it comparable to other pain and discomfort that you've had out there in bike racing? I mean, at the end of every race, you're pretty gassed. I think uh, this effort, though, like, it was just a deeper, like, big exhaustion. Like, mentally, I was fried. Physically, I was done. I think all in all, it was the hardest effort I've ever done. Like, the last lap up, my mom was riding next to me on my e-bike, and she's like, I've never heard you breathe so hard or seen you just so rest in your life. And she's, you know, seen me do a lot of bike races. So I think that uh, that kind of says something there. And what do you see the future being for Everesting? You've done it now. You've broken the record. A lot of people have given, you know, you've gotten a lot of media attention everything. What do you think, what do you hope happens with Everesting going forward? I don't know. It'd be cool to kind of see it turn into something like the hour record, you know, like um, just kind of make it a cool challenge and kind of see if it gets bigger. And I think, like I kind of mentioned before, like it's in a way it's really cool and special because any like, you know, an amateur can go, if they're reasonably fit, they can go do this and it takes them 17 hours or 20 hours. Like that's equally cool. And I think that that's one thing that ties it all together, like everyone. So um, and we'll kind of see where it goes. I'm curious as well. Well, Keegan Swenson, U.S. cross-country mountain bike champion and Everesting record, I appreciate you making some time for us today. We'll let you get back to your bike ride. But, um, hey, let us know when you are going to attempt another giant challenge on a bicycle. I will. Hopefully there's more in the future. We'll see. (laughs) Take care, Keegan. 